We have a lot of great people across all of our locations of Alive and people with expertise who are able to help us, particularly in this series as we're talking about wholeness. One such person is Dr. Roger Bretherton, who's the principal lecturer for enterprise in the School of Psychology at the University of Lincoln, and he's part of the Lincoln location. And he specializes in coaching and positive psychology. He consults extensively with both public and commercial sectors and has delivered keynote addresses to leaders in venues as varied as the University of Oxford, the Royal Albert Hall and the Hammersmith Apollo. His teaching and research and consultancy centers around character strengths and virtues and the positive qualities of character relating to psychological well-being. So I would say that uh, we can benefit greatly from Roger's expertise and also from his Christian faith. Uh, let's listen to Roger. God bless you all. Have a great, great day. Now, you'll know in, in the series we've been doing here on well-being um, that, that one of the things that Stuart has said quite a few times from the screen is that at the moment, well-being is everywhere. For at least the last decade, really, the UK in particular has been really, really obsessed with well-being. How do we find goodness? How do we find pleasure? How do we find engagement and meaning and good relationships? How do we begin to cope with the kind of mental health crisis that's going on in our schools, our universities, our workplaces, our homes? How do we cope with the kind of loneliness we're seeing in older adults? What do we do with all of that? And in a sense, the question I want to bring to that today is, yeah, there's some brilliant psychology in this area. Um, I, I, I work in the, this field called positive psychology, which is really the study of the good life here at the university. What you often find is that um, both psychology and Christianity, in a sense, are trying to answer the same question. What does it mean to live an abundant life? What does it mean to live a flourishing life? What does it mean to live with emotional wholeness? And that's the kind of question we're going to look at today. In the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 10, people start bringing their children to Jesus. They start saying, we want our kids. And the disciples say, stop, no, we don't want it. He's a great man. He's got more important things on his mind. We don't want kids coming to see Jesus. That's not, it's inconvenient. They're noisy. They mess everything up. Everyone with small kids is now saying, amen. Yes, we know, that is true. Um, and Jesus says, no, guys, stop doing that. And in Mark chapter 10, he says these words. He tells off his disciples, he said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands upon them. And true primarily, it's a story about kids. It's about how any community, any culture, any society that actually wants to see flourishing goodness has to prize, has to treasure, has to look after its kids. The World Health Organization a couple of years back said that basically we would solve all major physical and mental health problems in our culture if we put all our money into our children. Of course, we don't. But it's also a story about adults. It's a story about the kind of relationship that Jesus wants to form with, with the parts of us that feel childish, that feel inconvenient, that feel like they kind of get in the way. And when it comes to talking about emotions, if we're really honest, our emotions aren't always convenient. 
quite often they, they make a lie of some of our best ambitions. You know, we're forging ahead in something we want to do, in mission, uh, in activity, and yet behind that comes a deep sense of weariness and exhaustion. We're, we're, we're running around the world caring for people, looking after them, loving, being kind, and the more we do it, the more kind of resentment we feel building within us. We're being deeply grateful for all the things around us, and the more grateful we get, the more we sense that deep sense of entitlement within us. So I'm really delighted today that we've given time in this series on wholeness to talk about emotional wholeness. What does it mean to be emotionally whole? How do we make sense of some of the emotions that knock around, some of those things that kind of get in our way and confuse us at times? Um, I also know I'm kind of talking to other locations as well, and I I guess in an ideal world I'd be joining you and be with you too, but I hope this is a blessing to you as we speak and think about this area of emotional wholeness. I think when we start to talk about emotional wholeness, we're beginning to talk about the idea of integrity, how we bring ourselves together all in one place, how we don't have one part of ourselves that is almost... I mean, sometimes you feel like in order to be successful, in order to fit in in certain contexts, there's almost like part of you has to be checked at the door and left behind and ignored so that you can present the best face to the world. But actually, when you really think about emotions, ultimately, psychologists would say there are no negative or positive emotions, not really. All your emotions are there. They're trying to do something for you. They're trying to accomplish something. And yes, our emotions get disordered and we misunderstand them and sometimes they're disproportionate, but all of them give us a really good indication of where we are and how we're doing in any given moment. And the reason we draw a line between negative and positive emotions is that, generally speaking, negative emotions have what psychologists would call strong action tendencies attached to them. So fear wants to run away, anger wants to fight, shame wants to hide, sadness wants to collapse. That's why when you know, really brutal, bad leaders want to force people to do stuff, they lead them through negative emotion because you get very positive, you know, well, pretty predictable behaviors out of people. But are positive emotions, like joy, like serenity, like hope, like gratitude, like amusement, like interest, those kind of positive emotions, gentleness, we could go on, don't come with those strong action tendencies attached. So when you're feeling peaceful, it's not, what, what do I do with peace? It doesn't have a kind of clear thing to do. And when psychologists study positive emotions, what they find is they find that they, we, don't, we don't want to do something. What they do is, firstly, they broaden our awareness. So we start spawning things we hadn't seen before. When you're having moments of compassion or moments of peace, you start seeing people and noticing them and understanding what's going on. So they broaden our awareness. We're better at kind of solving problems. We're better at thinking of other people, better at collaborating when we're in those kind of emotional states. They have huge effects on our organizations that ripple on. Your moment of love uh, not only blesses the person you relate to, but the next person they relate to and the next person that person relates to. It ripples through social networks in those ways. So positive emotions, they broaden our awareness and they also build our resilience. So a moment spent in peace or love or forgiveness in your morning will actually make you more resilient against all the challenges that are going to come to you that day. And the fascinating thing about this is that Christians have been saying this for thousands of years, and psychologists have caught up with it scientifically in about the last 30. So the problem for many of us 
is that negative emotions are designed for the short term. They're designed to get you out of a difficult situation. If you're crossing the road and a truck starts barreling towards you, you don't want to be blissfully thinking about the color of the driver's eyes and thinking, hmm, I wonder what make that truck is and how it compares to other similar things on the market. You don't want to be thinking that. You just want to get out the way. That's what, that's what your negative emotions are designed to do. Problem, response, quick, like that. The problem for many of us is, is that in our kind of society, where actually we have loads and loads of informational demands on us, uh, particularly in the workplace, lots of feel like there's too much information coming our way, too many deadlines, our organizations, you ever notice how big organizations never tell you, oh, well done, you've done enough, you know, you never get that message from a big organization, they always want more and more and more and more. Um, and basically what that means is that many of us are living long-term in, sh- in emotions that were designed for the short term. So we're kind of living in fear, we're living in stress, we're living in shame, we're living in guilt over long periods of time because we're having to hold it and navigate it and work out what to do with it. And those emotions were designed for short-term use. And yet in our culture, we kind of we carry them a long time. And that's one of the issues. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to offer four practices for emotional wholeness. And the interesting thing is when you look in the Bible, according to the Apostle Paul, so Apostle Paul writing letters to lots of different churches, trying to tell them how to do church well, one of his ideas basically is that it's our practices, it's what we practice that will bring us peace. We've been forgiven, we've been accepted by God, we don't have to prove ourselves anymore. But he's saying now that you're living in that love, in that grace, what should you do? How should you live that allows you to enjoy and experiencing that well? So he writes to, to the Philippians uh, in chapter 4. Um, he says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever is pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So firstly, he's saying we all have a tendency to focus on the negative. We're designed that way. That, that is how humans tend to be. But he's saying what I want to do is I want you to reverse that and I want you to start seeing who's loving, who's kind, what God's done for you, where's the love, where's the beauty, where's the bravery, where's the wisdom. Start beginning to see those good, excellent, commendable qualities in yourself, in God, in others. That's what I want to focus on. But then the thing that we don't usually think about is what he says next. So that was verse 8. In verse 9, he then says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. He's saying these aren't abstract stuff. This isn't stuff that I just want you to think about conceptually. Like a philosopher, this stuff is actually in me. You've seen me doing it. So he's saying, basically, look for this in people. That's where you'll see it. And therefore, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If you're wondering how to do this stuff, look at other people a few steps ahead of you. Learn this from them. And he's saying, as you practice these wonderful qualities, the God of peace will be with you. Our practices lead to a sense of peace. Practice number one, gratitude. Emotional wholeness means appreciating what we have. Emotional wholeness means appreciating what we have. Because sometimes we think we're going to get better by hating the way we are and then just trying to get over that. I dislike this, I don't like that, these are the problems, let's try and get through that. Sometimes we think that basically by hating the way we are, that will motivate us to get better in some way. 
And actually, in a sense, that's the way modern advertising works. That's how marketing works. It says, basically, you know, here's a problem. Uh, you are insignificant, but if you eat this cereal, if you use this kind of power tool, um, if you go to this place on holiday, that will solve all your problems. It, it paints this wonderful future that we can step into. Um, I think it was Gerald Coates who once summed it up like this. He says, advertising robs you of your dignity and sells it back to you at the price of the product. Really nice phrase. And when you start to think about gratitude, gratitude does the opposite of that. It says, what, what do I have now? Because the problem with the advertising mentality is it puts us on something that psychologists have called the hedonic treadmill. And the hedonic treadmill is basically this. The things you think you need in order to be happy won't make you as happy as you think they will, and the happiness won't last as long as you think it's going to. So when you've got those things, it's only, it might be days before you need the next thing. Or sometimes even you get the thing that you've been questing at for ages, and when it arrives, it just wasn't what you thought it was going to be. I can remember as a kid saving up 49p for a Spider-Man web slinger from the local pound shop. And, and I, I had this image in my head that I'd be swinging from the rooftops through the school. All the kids at school would be like, wow, this guy's amazing. He's Spider-Man. What was it? It was basically really, really sticky glue that just sort of, you couldn't even make one web with it. Disappointment. Um, and that's a really kind of you know, silly example of what happens when sometimes we get much bigger things. We thought that marriage was going to solve our problem, or we thought the promotion was going to solve our problem, or we thought the new car or the new house was going to be the thing that would finally deliver wholeness to us, and then we get it, and it doesn't. Um, Ravi Zacharias, the preacher, says, the emptiest moment in life is when we experience that which we thought would deliver the ultimate and find it wanting. Painful, painful moments in life. So gratitude is an absolutely central concept biblically. Um, And if you've knocked around me for a while, you will have heard me talk about this a lot because I did go on about it. Um, It's a central concept biblically. So in the feeding of the multitude and the Last Supper, those kind of two things, feeding of the 5,000 is the only story that appears in all four Gospels. Um, the, The Last Supper in different versions appears in all four Gospels. And right at the center of both those events is Jesus being thankful. Uh, in the feeding of the 5,000, he, he doesn't go, God, please give me more bread. There's too many people here. He says, thank you. He says, thanks for the bread, and then just distributes it, and it goes to everybody. Uh, similarly, in the Last Supper, he breaks bread and gives thanks, and in doing so, he effectively says, there's enough in the breaking of my body to cover everybody who needs to be covered. That's his idea. And ultimately, what's going on there is what we are thankful for in our present will be part of our future. So what you're thankful of now, you will carry um, into the next phase of life, into what comes next. And so there's loads of psychology been done on this. Um, One of the leading experts in this uh, field is a guy called Bob Emmons. Um, And Bob Emmons um, is, you know, a Christian guy. In recent years, actually, he's moved on to study gratitude to God now is the thing he's really kind of looking at. Um, and he came up with all kinds of things where firstly he did a, you know, he works at a university like I do, so when he wanted to test it, he thought, what do I do? I take it to my students. So he got a bunch of students all writing down three things they were grateful for each day, and then he was amazed as their psychological well-being goes up, the amount of physical exercise they did went up, their positive emotion each day went up, um, anxiety and stress went down, and it was just through being thankful, just through taking a moment of being thankful. 
Um, another way you can be thankful, actually, is also to think about who are the people in your life who've made a huge contribution to you, but you've never thanked them. You've never actually kind of gone and said, I, I really want to do this. Uh, one way you can do that is you can write them a letter. Some people would say you write the letter, you laminate it, and you take it and read it to them, even if that means you have to jump on a plane to get and see them. Um, I'd probably set up that conversation first because it can be awkward if they're not expecting it. <laughs> but, you know, they're, they're, there are wonderful people in our life who've really given to us in all kinds of different ways, and it's right that we're grateful to them. So Stuart and Irene, grateful to you guys for all the years of service that you've had with us. Paul and Joy, thank you so much for just standing with us and holding us up the whole time. Your prayers mean a lot. Sean and Mel sat there. You know, we go back a long time, you know, over 30 years now, but I really, really appreciate everything you've been to us and the time we've known you. And I could go on, couldn't I? I could carry on, so sorry, I can't do everybody. But um, it's just kind of being really aware of what is it that people have contributed to you and realize that you haven't stood alone in the world. Other people have been with you all the way along. But then the other thing is that there are moments when gratitude actually helps us deal with trauma. Gratitude isn't just something for the days that are great. It's also actually some of the days that are really, really bad. Have you ever had an awful day where you come home and you're just grateful that that's over? Um, there's one, one exercise in gratitude research that, that, that is called your worst day. And basically what you do is if you're feeling particularly ungrateful one day, just think about your worst day and be thankful that this one was slightly better than that one was. Um, but one of the things um, I've found consistently um, in my life is that gratitude is one of the things that's carried me through some of the most painful moments in life. Um, some of you know that several years ago, uh, my wife's brother, Niall, my brother-in-law, um, died um, of cancer very, very quickly. Um, you know, within, uh, he got married early, and within um, a month or two of being married, um, he died. And having kind of walked through the pain of cancer with other people like Joy and Paul and various friends of ours, we knew that as he reached the end, that probably he wasn't going to be in contact with us, you know, that he's, he'd go into that sort of medicated kind of coma where we couldn't make contact with him anymore and so Marie Claire had the wisdom to say to him now we think probably as, as we get towards the end um, you won't be able to hear us anymore um, we won't be able to communicate with you what would you like us to say to you during that period of time and he said well what I'd like to do is I'd like you to just say good things about me so she got an A4 pad of paper and went around all her relatives. So she's Irish. So there's about a million relatives all waiting in the reception of the hospital for two weeks. <laughs> and she, she's going around kind of getting all... And they're just writing down on this pad all the kind of different things that he meant to them and how they appreciated him and what they were grateful for and all that kind of thing. Um, and then it, 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 there came a moment where he then eventually did slump out of consciousness and Marie Claire thought, okay, now's the moment. And she sat by his bedside and she just read through, you know, line after line after line after line of all these things that people had said to him. Um, you know, his love of surfing, his strange obsession with restoring tractors, um, his kamikaze driving, you know, all these kind of things that were kind of quite fun about him. And at the end, she just ended with her own kind of thing and she said, I want to thank you, Niall, that what I have learned from you is that nothing is so old, damaged, or broken that it cannot be mended, renewed, or reused. Nothing is so damaged or broken that it cannot be um, mended, renewed, or reused. 
And it was literally at the moment, the moment she said that words were the moment literally where he took his last breath. She ran out the room to find um, his wife to come in so she could say goodbye to him before he went. Gratitude can be one of the healthiest ways of us holding on to what we've lost. Um, I, some of you will know um, that in May last year, um, I lost my own dad. Um, he was in his 70s, but I, I actually had predicted you know, another 10, 15 years with him probably. Happened very, very sudden. Didn't feel well, stayed in bed. My mum went off to church when she came back. He was gone, died in his sleep of a heart attack. And what's funny for me is that while he was alive, I was so aware of how I was different from him. You know, all the ways we kind of disagreed, where we didn't see eye to eye, all that kind of thing. And it was almost like the moment that he died. And as I went through arranging the funeral and dealing with solicitors and all that kind of thing, um, I, I just began to be aware of how similar we are and how a lot of the things that I didn't like in him kind of just like me. <laughs> and so gratitude, I think, is being grateful for what we've received from others. And gratitude ensures that we carry the best bits of our past into our future. That's gratitude. How about hope? So emotional wholeness means believing that there is a better future. Believing that there is a better future ahead of us. Because that's the message of hope. The message of hope is you can get there from here. That's what hope tells you. You can get there from here. It may feel sometimes, you know, you have moments of death of hope where it feels like your future is cut off and you're never going to get to it. The message of hope says you can get there from here. And again, the Apostle Apostle Paul speaks of a mystery in the Old Testament. And the mystery he's kind of wrestling with is he says it seems like all the way through the Old Testament, God has been asking people to be you know, good, to be righteous, to, to show his glory, to demonstrate the character of God. And yet the whole message of the Old Testament just to seem, seems to be failure. The whole thing just doesn't work out, fails. And so Paul is writing to the Colossians uh, in, in chapter 1 of Colossians, and he says this, the mystery hidden for ages and generations has now been revealed to his saints, in other words, to us. To them, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In other words, he's kind of saying this. He's saying, you may not think you're up to much. You may not think that you're going anywhere. You may feel right now that your life's in a bit of a dead end. But he says, actually, here's the hope. Christ in you. Jesus has put good things in you that cannot be denied. Whenever I train people in any context, wherever I am, whether it's church, business, university, or whatever, one of the big assumptions I hold about people is that there is something in them that's bigger than they are pushing out. I say to Christians, you know, God is up to something big in you. The difficulty is we frustrate, we hinder, we sabotage all the kind of stuff God wants to do with us, and that's, that's the dilemma of being human, isn't it? But it is there, and you can trust that hope that God has placed in you. Hope is the unseen creative potential for change in your current situation. And and at this point, I always feel like I need to speak to anyone. If you're kind of in in the grips of depression or deep sadness or disappointment or failure, if hard things have happened to you lately, it's really hard to hear a message of hope. Because in those moments, hope just feels a bit like nonsense, pie in the sky. What's that got to do with me right now? But the message of hope really is you never quite know what's going to happen next. You don't know what corner 
life is going to turn. The number of times I've sat down with depressed people and talked to them, and sometimes even within weeks of me speaking to them, something has come their way that's just allowed them to turn that corner and move out of it. Um, I, I personally, up until kind of my early 20s, kind of struggled a lot with sort of uh, suicidal thoughts and kind of quite deep depression in all kinds of different ways. And I used to call it my black bubble. It was almost like this sort of thing just descended on me and I couldn't find my way out of it. And being the psychologist that I am, um, I decided to treat myself. So I started reading all the books on uh, depression and using all the stuff on myself and treating myself, right thinking, ways of behaving, different experiences, etc. And you know what? It worked pretty well. You know, it was pretty good. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm really making progress. I'm seeing better things in myself. I'm being more loving towards others. I'm finding some freedom in it. And then uh, I, I, I'm sat in the garden before church, before coming here, um, probably, probably about uh, maybe 16, 17 years ago, and I'm sat in my garden, and suddenly I just feel that sort of big black bubble of depression land on me again. And I just cry out to God. I say, God, when am I going to be free of this thing? I've done everything I can do psychologically, and yet here I am again. So I come to church, and we're celebrating uh, Mark Hutton um, at the moment, aren't we? He, he sort of moves on to the next phase of his ministry, and uh, Mark was speaking. And so I'm sat in kind of row three, and um, Mark is speaking, and he gets to the end of his message and um, gives what admittedly is a fairly generic kind of appeal. It's sort of, if you're here tonight, and you're sat in your pew, and you're still breathing, come forward because God wants to bless you. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So I have a bit of resistance, and I'm like, no, I need a much more specific call than that to respond to, I'm afraid. Um, but I feel the Holy Spirit just say to me, no, this one's for you. Go forward now. Um, so I stand up, and I'm literally, I get from row three to about row one and a half, and the Holy Spirit hits me powerfully, and I just hit the ground, shaking. And it was so sudden and so unexpected that I honestly thought I was having an epileptic fit. Um, I, and as I went down, I was thinking to myself, apologies to those of you who may have seizures, I was thinking to myself, oh, so this is what it's like to have a seizure. I really thought that's what was going on. And as I kind of shook on the ground, it was almost like this kind of just this heaviness lifted me and went. Um, and what I've found is that ever since then, if I want to go back to that dark place, I can. I'm still free to. If I really wish to, really want to push it, it can, I can go there. But never again has that thing sort of landed on me that's kind of afflicted me. And um, that's just one story I could tell of the number of times where often being in church, some really negative influence has just been lifted off me in some way. Um, and, and in a sense, that's what we live in hope. You know, we may not know what we're doing half the time, but God knows what he's doing with us. So gratitude, hope, let's talk about endurance. So emotional wholeness makes suffering okay. Emotional wholeness makes suffering okay. I often feel like my, my biggest job as a psychologist and a Christian is to make pain okay. It's to say suffering is part of life. That's part of this deal. Because I think sometimes we think that being a good Christian means always feeling good. But let me just tell you, if you never feel fear, never feel guilt, never feel shame, um, never feel sadness, that's not being a good Christian. That's called brain damage. Just to be clear about it, you know, those things are a natural part of who we are as human beings. And endurance is the art of suffering usefully. 
Endurance is the art of suffering usefully. When, when those moments of pain come, how do we work with them? What do we do with them? It doesn't ask the question, why am I suffering? I think that's one of the most useless questions we can ever ask. Why has this happened to me? What's going on? You know, it's very difficult to work out what's going on there. But we can ask the question, what am I gaining or learning from my current pain? What am I gaining or learning from my current pain? Sometimes we don't know what it is when we're in the pain. Let's be clear. You know, when that moment comes, sometimes we have no clue how this is helping us or what's going on. But what am I gaining or learning from my current pain? In psychological terms, it's been called post-traumatic growth or sometimes adversarial growth. And it's been studied many, 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 many times now about what happens when people go through really, really difficult things and then come out the other side saying, you know, I feel wiser, I feel more compassionate, I feel I've got a deeper spiritual connection, uh, I've greater courage, more vulnerability, uh, deeper sense of who I am and what I'm about in the world. Over and over and again, people describe those kind of things. And that's what we get. In endurance. Gratitude, hope, endurance, kindness. Emotional wholeness means not being too cool to be kind. In order to be kind, there has to be some tenderness in you. You've got to be willing for people to get to you a little bit. There's got to be some vulnerability that you respond out of. Kindness is love in action. Sometimes we call it compassion, and in compassion, we decenter ourselves. And we step out in love for the other. And the weird thing is that very often when we're in those compassionate moments, we're not aware of ourselves. But when we come back to ourselves later, we realize that somehow we're bigger inside. Like the TARDIS, you know, on the outside with this, on the inside, we've grown somehow. And it's really good for us to care for someone else. You know, in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, Paul quotes Jesus. And weirdly, he has a quote from Jesus that doesn't appear in any of the other Gospels. So we don't know where we got it from. But but he says, basically, as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And Paul's speaking out of this life of giving sacrificially in all kinds of different ways. And when you look at the research on this, here's what you discover. You discover that actually people who learn willingly to care for others actually do much better themselves. Studies of school children, when when they do acts of kindness and how that works, and actually what that does in terms of building their self-esteem, their sense of contribution, their ability to give into the world, it changes a lot of things. If you want to practice kindness a bit more, you're just thinking, yeah, let's, let's give this a shot this week. Um, most of the research would actually say that you shouldn't try and help everybody everywhere all the time. That's probably going to burn you out. Um, but one of the best ways of doing it is to be selective. Just decide who and where and how, in a really effective way, am I going to be kind to and help. Some people even say, have a kindness day. Make Friday your kindness day. Plan up to Friday exactly what you're going to do. Do it. And then you might even do it anonymously, but enjoy sneakily what happened when you, you know, even in small things, you dropped the chocolate on someone's desk. You visited that person um, who was in hospital. Gratitude, hope, endurance, kindness, just four practices we could try. We could have gone on and on and on and talked about many others How should we do it? So the worst way to hear what I've said, as I said earlier, is to hear it as a to-do list. If anything, if you're going to hear it in any way, you should hear it as a to-be list. Who are you? What's in you? And how can you express that in some way? And the best way of doing that is to view it through a lens of curiosity and experiment. 
I love how the, kind of the preachers of the 19th century used to talk about practical Christianity as experimental Christianity. That was their name for it. This is where we try it out and we see what happens. A bit of prayer, a bit of kindness, a bit of discipleship. Experimental Christianity is what they called it. And also think about the kind of the times and the spaces where you can do it. Think about how life all the time is offering you moments when you can practice, even just in prayer, some hope, some endurance, some kindness. Um, just, Just begin to put some of these things out there, except we don't usually spot them because we view them as inconveniences. We call them the, you know, the queue at the supermarket or, or the traffic that got in the way or the childcare we had to sort out or, or you know, Windows 10, stuff that just delays us, uh, slower than we'd like it to be. But actually, life in that way is giving us mini-rests and micro-sabbaths all the time. If rather than leaving our minds spinning on what comes next, we just use those moments a little bit more usefully in a bit more of a godly way. And finally, just to say... A short talk can't cover everything. So particularly if you're currently going through a period of trauma or distress, if there's anything I've said that judges you in some way or invalidates what you're currently going through, just ignore it. Probably wasn't for you. And whoever you are, wherever you're at, if you only hear one thing about emotional well-being today, hear this, that Jesus calls you into rest and peace that's where he's calling you to. The many greats of, great saints in church history who went on to transform the world, who often said that the bit of the Bible that really called them into it was the call of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says this. He says, Come to me, all who labor on a heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Isn't it amazing that such a placid Bible passage can call people into transforming the world? Call to peace doesn't sound too bad, does it? 